We are in the third week of our Advent. We've been considering light from the family Christmas tree, looking at some of the women in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ as Matthew chapter 1 and the Christmas story begins with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. We've been pointing out that there are another number of departures from the norm when it comes to the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those departures is that there are women listed in the genealogy, not just men, and that those women play a very significant role. So we've been focusing on the women in the genealogy for this particular Advent season. We have pointed out that three of the five women that are referred to in the genealogy are actually foreigners to Israel, Rahab, Tamar, and Ruth. But there's much more to it than that. This morning, we focus our attention on Ruth. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. So we find out that Rahab is the mother of Obed. But what do we learn from Ruth and Boaz's inclusion in Jesus' genealogy? What is to be the great takeaway? Well, in order to answer that question, I invite you to turn with me to, to the book of Ruth, and we're going to be working our way through this entire book. So there are things I'm going to have to go over very quickly and just kind of highlight as we focus ultimately in the last chapter. But uh, what is it that we need to know about Ruth? Well, the first thing we need to know about Ruth is that she married an Israelite. But how did that happen? So if you look with me at Ruth chapter 1, reading at verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into this country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Next, we need to know that both of Naomi's sons die. That means that Ruth's husband dies in Ruth chapter 1, verse 5. Naomi then decides to return to Israel, and her daughters-in-law accompany her in verse 6. Then Naomi encourages her daughters-in-law to go home, because they have no hope of getting married, and there is really nothing in the land of Israel for them. So starting at verse 11. It reads, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why do you go with me? I, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Next, I want to focus on what is the significance of Ruth being a Moabite. We were told in Ruth chapter 1, verse 4, that these sons took Moabites as wives. What's the significance? Well, it's important to realize that a Moabite, during the time of the judges, was an enemy to Israel, and they were a people under God's condemnation and judgment. According to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, it reads, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So they marry these Moabite women who are excluded from Israel and are who excluded from assembly of gathering together for the worship of God. Now that sounds pretty dire and final. However, it's important for us to keep in mind that it was possible for a foreigner, even an enemy of Israel, even a Moabite, to be converted or put in contemporary language to be saved. They could become a part of the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, we read, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. In other words, you could become a part of Israel and you'd be treated like one who was born in the nation of Israel. You'd be a full-fledged Israelite. Once a person became a proselyte or converted, if you will, to the faith of the Jewish people, they had all the rights and privileges as well as the duties and responsibilities of being an Israelite. I mentioned last week that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was good news for all people, and that there would be a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation that would be worshiping God. I think most people are familiar with those verses from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and verse 10, but perhaps what we are not as familiar with is that that is an Old Testament concept as well, that this is in keeping with the entire teaching of the Word of God. In Psalm 87, there is a psalm of celebration. It's speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, and in particular, the people who are going to comprise its citizenship, the, the people who are going to be a part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the people who are going to be saved, if you will. These people that are described in the book of Revelation from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation is referred to in Psalm 87. Just like to read it for you and listen to the refrain that is given. And I'll point it out to you. In Psalm 87, it reads On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab in Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush, all of those are foreigners to Israel. All of those are enemies of the children of Israel. And it says, behold, they are there. And now here's the refrain. This one was born there, they say. And out of Zion it shall be said, this one and that word were born in here. 
for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. So it's repeated time and time again. This one was born there. This one was born there. This one was born there. It's referring to the fact that they are full citizens, that they have full equality with the people of God. They are considered as full members of the people of God. So it was possible to be converted and to become a full member of the people of God. Ruth's conversion is recorded in Luke chapter 1, verse 16. The verse prior to that has to deal with Naomi. And again, she's encouraging her daughter-in-laws to return to Moab, verse 15 of chapter 1. And she, that is Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods because the Moabites worshipped false gods. They worshipped Tamash, and they worshipped Baal. So Naomi says to Ruth, go back with your sister-in-law. Go back to your land. Go back to your gods. But Ruth said in verse 16 of chapter 1, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. So she is placing her faith and her trust, her commitment in God, saying that she's going to abandon her God, she's going to abandon her people, uh, she's going to become an Israelite, and she is going to put her faith and trust in God. Well, as the story proceeds, Ruth and Naomi come to Bethlehem and encounter a wonderful godly relative of theirs named Boaz. Boaz is exceedingly kind and gracious and generous to Ruth and Naomi. Ruth is amazed that Boaz would treat a Moabite so kindly. And uh, in verse 10 of chapter 2 it reads, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, that's Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Well, Boaz answers, it's because of all the good that Ruth has done for her mother-in-law, to begin with, verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. But more than that, Boaz goes on to say it's because he had heard that she had put her faith and trust in God. Verse 12, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she had come to Israel trusting in God and believing that he would provide for her, believing that he would take care of her. And so Boaz desires that Ruth would experience a great blessing. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. So he seeks the welfare and the well-being of, of Ruth. He wants her to be blessed by God, since she has put her faith and trust in him. That actually is the background that leads us up to, to where we're going to pick up the story. Since Boaz is a relative of Ruth's dead husband, Naomi instructs Ruth to ask Boaz to marry her in keeping with the Old Testament law. Remember, due to her conversion, she now has all the legal rights of being a full member of Israel. In Israel, it was the duty of the next closest relative to marry a childless widow. Now, that's pretty foreign to us, I get it, and there are some 
Old Testament laws that we need to look at this morning to understand all that's taking place. I encourage you to keep your finger here because we're coming right back and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then put a marker there because we're going to be flipping back and forth from Deuteronomy 25 to the book of Ruth this morning. So you need a marker in both places. Deuteronomy chapter 25, looking at verse 5 to begin. Deuteronomy 25, 5. Put a marker there. Deuteronomy 25, 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That's referred to as a Leverite marriage. So there was this responsibility for a widow in the family to be married by another relative of the deceased husband. So Ruth asks Boaz to marry her. But the brother of Ruth's dead husband has died also. So now the responsibility to marry Ruth goes to the closest living relative to Ruth's dead husband. Boaz is willing to marry Ruth in keeping with Old Testament law. Look with me at, now we're back to Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. This is Boaz's response to the request of Ruth that he marry her. Verse 11 of chapter 3, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. But there's a problem. That is, there is one who is a closer relative to Ruth's dead husband that should marry Ruth. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So Boaz says that he will take care of it in the morning. If the closer relative will marry Ruth, then so be it. If the closer relative will not marry Ruth, then Boaz will marry her. Verse 13. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not be willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So the next day, Boaz meets the closer relative who is the legal redeemer. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. But now there's a twist in the story. Naomi, who is in extreme poverty, owns some land that she needs to sell, verse 3. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. The land purchase should go to the nearest relative, Leviticus 25, 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest Redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. That's referred to as the institution of redemption. He is the redeemer. He is the one that is to buy this land. It was intended to prevent Israel from selling their land to other tribes. 
The land was viewed as an allotment by God. God had given the land to Israel by groups. Each family group, each tribe owned their own land. And so that land was to be kept within that tribe. So it became this responsibility of the closest relative to redeem the land. Therefore, in keeping with the Old Testament law, Boaz gives the man the first rights to purchase the land. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, but it, it, by it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you'll redeem it, redeem it. If the man does not want to purchase it, Boaz is next in line and he will purchase it. The end of verse 4. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, I will come after you. Well, initially, the nearer kinsman says that he's willing to buy the land. At the end of verse 4, he said, I will redeem it. But there is an important condition of sale. The land is encumbered, if you will. Uh, In modern language, there's a lien against it. There's a problem. And that is that along with purchasing the land, he's got to marry Ruth. It's a package deal. Verse 5. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite. These two laws merge. The law of the Leverite marriage, the law of redeeming the land, it's all a package deal now. And you can have the land, but you've got to take Ruth also. You can't have Ruth without the land, and you can't have the land without Ruth. They go together. The reason is because that land will pass on to Ruth's child as the legal heir of Malon. The child was to be legally viewed as that of the dead husband, not the child of the Redeemer. So the child is viewed by law as the child of Ruth's dead husband, Malon. So he's going to get the land when the child is of age. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And I know I'm getting technical here, but when we get to the end, you're going to see how it all fits together. And if you mark your Bible, that's actually a very key point in this narrative. So if you mark your Bible, I'd encourage you to circle the words, perpetuate the name of the dead. Perpetuate the name of the dead. This is what this is about. So that Malon lives on, if you will. The property remains in his family's name. Now let me read more of the law given to you in Deuteronomy 25. Hopefully you kept your finger there. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 25. give you verse 5 as uh, the context. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. 
That is, his name may not be blotted out of Israel, that he'd be remembered, okay? So the land's going to pass to this child. Back to Ruth. When the man hears the condition, he wants nothing to do with the land. The man does not see this as being to his financial benefit. Verse 6, the redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, okay? This isn't going to belong to me. It's going to belong to Ruth's child that I'm fathering, but it's not going to be mine. And the man says, in essence, I can't do that. The land will go to Ruth's son, and any other children are going to suffer as a result of this land going to Ruth and her child. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. This makes no financial sense, is what this guy is saying. Well, the whole point is it's not about him. It's not about him getting rich. It was a way to care for the widow and her, her son and Naomi, etc. But he says, I want no part of this. This, this is going to ruin me financially. So the man relinquishes all rights to the land of Boaz, verse 6. End of verse 6. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. The deal is then legally settled. And the narrator gives us this commentary, verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So we have the fulfillment of the law and this contract is entered into, verses 8 and 9. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I bought from the land of Naomi all that belonged to Lemelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, a near kinsman could refuse to marry a relative's widow, but it was a disgraceful thing to do. So you could renege on your responsibility, but you were to be viewed as a cad. That would be a horrible thing to do. Picking up in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 7. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name. There we have that again. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. He won't marry me. If the elders cannot convince the redeemer to do the right thing, then the widow is to publicly humiliate him. She's to pull the man's shoe off and spit in his face. Verse 8, then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her. So they're supposed to reason with him, they're supposed to argue with him, but if he just won't give in, I do not wish to take her. Verse 9, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Now that's pretty graphic. That's what he's to be thought of, okay? You spit in his face. Uh, he's to be disgraced. That, that was a terrible thing to do. This was to be a public humiliation. 
for failing to fulfill his duty. End of verse 9 of Deuteronomy 25. So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the man is to receive a lasting reproach. Verse 10. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him whose uh, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Uh, that's, he's supposed to go down to infamy is that way. Back to Ruth. Believe me, all this is going to come together. Just hang in there with me. Number seven. Uh, back to Ruth. Boaz's motivation is to fulfill the law of God, to preserve the land for Malon's heir. This detail is essential in understanding the narrative and what we follow. So Boaz is doing the right thing. Back to Ruth chapter 4, verse 10. Also, the Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Here's the reason. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place, which is exactly what Deuteronomy 25 says. I'm doing what the law tells me to do. I'm going to keep this guy's inheritance. And he's going to own the land. It's repeated in verse 5. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead is inheritance. And it's what was found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 6. So now we see the graciousness of Boaz once again. I'd like to just point out some things that demonstrate how generous and kind Boaz is. There are some departures here from what Deuteronomy 25 describes. Here they are. Number one, first, he did not put Ruth through the ordeal of confronting the man. Instead of her going to the elders, Boaz goes to the elders. Secondly, Boaz did not try to seek the man, uh, to talk the man out of refusing to marry Ruth. He doesn't squeeze him but simply gives them an option. If you want to marry her, fine. If you don't want to marry her, I will. Thirdly, small thing, but Boaz didn't pull his shoe off. The man relinquished his shoe. He said, here it is. And number four, Boaz did not spit in his face. He didn't seek to publicly humiliate him. Boaz's motives are pure. They're altruistic. That is that He's not in it for himself and what he can get out of it. He's in it for the right reasons. To provide for Ruth, to provide for Ruth's offspring, to provide for Naomi. Now the focus shifts to Ruth having a child, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The scripture points out that it was the Lord who gave her conception. And of course... It is the Lord who gave Ruth a son. We, we know that. But it's stated explicitly so you don't miss it. Okay? Here is the Lord's goodness. The Lord gave her conception. That's stated explicitly. But there's a lesson to learn from this implicitly. And that is, it was God who kept Ruth by having a son from her husband of 10 years. God is in this. God is in this. God's sovereignty is seen throughout the entire book, and I haven't been able to give you all the details. But there's God's providence in 
Elimelech going to Moab. There's God's providence in there being a famine. There is God's providence in Ruth going to Boaz's field to glean. There is God's providence in Ruth being protected when she comes to Boaz at night. There is God's providence that the next morning the man just happens to come by the, the way and be at the gate when Boaz wants to talk to him. It's God's providence that the man refuses to redeem Ruth. God's providence is seen time and time again, and even more. It's God's providence that not only did Ruth not have a child, but that the other sister-in-law did not have a child by her husband, who was a descendant of Elimelech. They both were barren. God's hand in this is all over the point. So what's the point of all this? All right, that's what we want to get to. What's the point? It's been a long and tedious road, I know. What's the point? Well, there are six ironies in this story that I want to point out. Six ironies. The first irony is the man who refuses to redeem and marry Ruth because he's concerned about ruining his own inheritance. He's thinking only of himself. He's not thinking in terms of of what is good for Ruth, what's good for Naomi. He's thinking only in terms of money. And as we have seen, that was to be disgraceful. In that disgrace, though nothing is done publicly, he actually is disgraced. I told you that this story surrounds being perpetuating the name, perpetuating the name, of honoring the names of people. The first thing we find out is that this man's name does not appear anywhere in the text. He's simply referred to as the Redeemer. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Behold the Redeemer. Ruth chapter 4, verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Ruth 4, verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, Ruth 4, verse 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, his name never appears, just his duty. A duty in which he miserably failed. A duty that he did not fulfill. He was the Redeemer. He was the Redeemer. He was the Redeemer. He was the Redeemer. But he didn't redeem. But that did not thwart, overcome God's will in any means. Ruth would be redeemed, but it would not be by this man. He was concerned about his legacy. He was concerned about the future generations. He was concerned about what this would mean for those that would follow him. It's going to ruin my inheritance. You know, we need to think about what... Is it really important that we leave to the next generation? What is the best way we can serve our children and our grandchildren? What is it that we need to be most concerned about? For this man, it was money. But we're going to find that there are more important things to be considered. The second irony is that the child is named by the woman of of the city. This is all about names. They recognize that this child that's born of Boaz and Ruth is a very special child. Verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. 
and may his name be renowned in Israel. May, may he become famous. May he become instrumental. May he be elevated in the land of Israel. What is highly unusual is that it's the women of the town that name the child. Look at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son had been born to Naomi. They named him Boaz. It's said twice so you don't miss it. The neighborhood women named the child. They named him Obed. There is no place else in all the scripture where the townspeople are naming somebody's baby. Usually it's the father. Sometimes it's the mother. But it's never the townspeople. Uh, We just had a birth in uh, our congregation. I doubt that they're probably going to poll us and see what they ought to name their child. Okay, I I don't think that's what's going to happen. But that's what happens here. That's what happens here. The whole town has been involved in this birth. They are intricately involved in the events of the story. This has been a public affair from the very beginning. Calling the elders together and, and cementing this marriage. They named him Obed, which means servant. He'll be a servant both to Naomi and ultimately the Lord. In serving Naomi, God's purpose is fulfilled in the Leverite marriage. Ruth 4, 14 through 16. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a redeemer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Naomi's going to be provided for in a wonderful way by this this child. But not only is he going to become a servant of Naomi, he's also going to become a servant of the Lord. His name is going to be renowned, and the most important aspect of his being renowned is that He's going to become an ancestor to David, verse 17. The women in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying a name has been, uh, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. God has purposes as they relate to our own personal life, and they fit into the larger context of what God is doing in the world, both now and into the future. He's going to serve God by being the grandfather of David. You see the irony here of this man is concerned that his inheritance is going to be ruined because it's going to be a financial hardship to him and he's not going to have enough money to leave his kids. But the heritage is (laughs) that this person becomes the grandfather of David. That there's this incredible legacy that's, that's created. A wonderful blessing to be passed on to the nation and to the world. The third irony is that the child is referred to as a child of Naomi, not a child of Nalon or Abimelech, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Supposedly, the whole point of the marriage was to perpetuate Malon's name, but it never appears in the text, for God has something different in store. The fifth irony is that it is Ruth and Boaz's names that are perpetuated. 
Whereas the man is concerned that his inheritance is going to be corrupted, and he will have nothing, it turns out that Boaz is exalted through this, this marriage. While it would appear in the beginning that there's nothing in it for him, it turns out to be the greatest movie ever made. Not thinking that way, not anticipating that, simply doing the right thing and being generous, he's going to turn out to be the father of Obed, who's the grandfather of David. Ruth chapter 4, verse 21. Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed. If you were following a legal genealogy, it would have said Malon fathered. Obed, for he would be the legal son of Malon. It's not following the law, it's following the biological parent. Boaz is the biological parent. But what was intended was that the legality would be emphasized. Now, let me just say the legality was fulfilled in the, in the land, I'm sure, went to Malon's son, etc. But I'm saying to you in the providence of God, it's not Malon's name who's perpetuated and comes down through the generations. It's Boaz's. But now we find something else. And that is that this genealogy does, uh, doesn't look backwards, it looks forward. If you look at Ruth chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed. That brings us to the present, but then it shifts to the future. Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. That's in the future. That's in the future. These events have ramifications for generations to come. The last last two ironies, and I'm going to go through these quickly, is the exaltation of Ruth. There is an exaltation of Ruth in her own day. Ruth is praised for her commitment to Naomi in verse 15. For your daughter-in-law loves you. Ruth is praised for her worth, verse 15, who is more to you than seven sons. This Ruth, they're saying, is more valuable to you than if you had seven sons. Here we see the reality of the benefits and the reality of her conversion. She's treated as one who was born in Israel. But there is a perpetual exaltation of Ruth's name. Remember, this is all about perpetuating the name. There is an ongoing perpetuation of Ruth's name. It's found in our genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, by Ruth. This is the first time that her name comes up in the genealogy. We see repeatedly in the Old Testament situations in which Israelites remarkably and unexpectedly are elevated in foreign lands to be a place of prominence in order to be a blessing to others and serve the purpose of God. They're highlighted in Scripture and they are unique. For example, Joseph, who goes to the land of Egypt, becomes second only to Pharaoh. 
Moses, who goes to the land of Egypt and is raised in Pharaoh's household. Daniel, who's taken captive to Babylon and rises to the place of authority and dominion in Babylon. Esther, in the book of Esther, goes to Persia and becomes queen of Persia, becomes the wife of the king. And all of these individuals are used to be a blessing to God's people and a blessing to others. All of them save lives in some way. All of them are instruments of God's grace and God's goodness. But what is unique in this passage is that a foreign woman comes into Israel. A Moabite becomes an Israelite who is raised to a position of stature and prominence whose child is going to be this great influence in the nation and in the world, ultimately through the lineage of David and then finally Christ. Christ. This is a true and complete redemption. She is not only a part of Israel, she's a part of God's family. There's a sixth uh, irony. Remember I said that the Moabite could not enter the worship place for ten generations? Deuteronomy 23.3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. We now have a listing in the Ruth of a genealogy. It's the second one. If you look with me at Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 and following. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. If you look closely at that, guess how many generations that is? Ten. Ten. Here's the grace of God. Ten generations of which God has been long-suffering. God has been gracious. God has been good. There are so many ties to this that I can't get into this morning, but let me just give you one out there to think about. Tamar. Her children are the product of a Leverite marriage in which the father did not want to fulfill the duties and responsibilities of the marriage. There are so many ties in these genealogies that are absolutely fascinating. But we see a gracious God at work. He's redeeming a people. He is saving a people. A people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And it's shown even in Jesus' genealogy. That's the great message. I really appreciated this statement from John Curd's book, so I want to give him the credit, from entitled Bitter to Sweet. He says this, and I quote, The episode involving Ruth and Boaz illustrates the correct perspective on the sovereignty of God. This is a story of the lives of a few characters in a short period of time and in a small geographical setting, 
And yet God uses them to accomplish much higher purposes. Indeed, they help to establish the line of the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. This truth should be a good lesson to all Christians. All believers serve a greater purpose than merely what goes on in their immediate lives. Christians are part of a greater scheme of God's unfolding plan and purpose for his church. And so let us not think and ponder only of the here and now. Let us not act only for the present, but may we have eyes of eternity and live according to eternal realities, end quote. It's good for us to keep in mind that God has a purpose for our lives that is bigger than ourselves. And little decisions that don't seem like much can have incredible eternal consequences. Doing things because they're according to God's law and because they are ways of being gracious and kind to others are so far surpassed in doing things out of selfish motives and only for financial gain. What is best for our future generations are people that are concerned about handing to them a lineage of faith and obedience before God. I'd like you to think this morning that our involvement in just one little area, our involvement in this church, is creating a legacy for generations to come. The teaching of Sunday school will impact not only the children that are in our class, but their children and their children and their children. The building of the building that we have just dedicated will hopefully stand for years and be used for God not only for the generation in which we live, but future generations to serve and to fellowship and to reach a people for Christ. We can't see the future. We can't see how God is going to use us, but he is. But he is. We can't name the future generations, but God knows who they are. God has a plan, and not only does God have a plan, but he's fulfilling it, he's keeping it. We will only know in eternity when we stand in the very presence of God. Only then is the veil going to be lifted, and we're going to see what God has been doing, what God has been up to, how God has so graciously acted and provided, and it stems ultimately from sending us his son to redeem us, that we could be a part of his family, used to his honor and glory. The lives of Boaz and Ruth are not forgotten. Their names are perpetuated down to this very day. That man's name is long forgotten. It would fail to redeem Ruth, the one who was trying to protect his name and his inheritance. So too, so too, in the annals of God, our names are written down in heaven. Never to be forgotten. Our words, our deeds. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the script, Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their works do follow them. What we have done in this Life matters. You, I know you've heard it said you can't take it with you. But one thing you can take with you is the good that you have done. The 
purposes of God that you have fulfilled. It will be remembered. You will be rewarded. What you have done will be proclaimed. Not just so that we can be exalted, but God can be exalted. For it is he who saves us. It is he who provides for us. It is he who enables. It is he who has this plan that he is fulfilling. So there's a great beauty that Matthew chapter 1 starts and reminds us that Boaz and Ruth have a child. Obed, who has a child, Jesse, who has a child, David, who ultimately has a child, Jesus. Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the great, great working of your spirit. We, we thank you for your providence. You're bringing situations together, things that look dire in the beginning, but yet have a, a tremendous outcome. Lord, you had many things in store for Ruth. She had a lot of hard years, but yet, Lord, uh, there was great blessing. Blessing. Blessing that was unanticipated. Blessing that Naomi could not foresee. Telling her to go back to Moab. There's nothing in Israel for you. How wrong could Naomi have been? There were great blessings for her in being in Israel. Simply by adopting the faith of the true and living God. Believing and trusting in him. And experiencing his goodness and his grace. And that grace in so many ways. Including Boaz, this generous, godly, righteous man who simply wants to do what God would have him to do for the, for the most altruistic, the best reasons. And yet, Lord, how you have used it in ways that he could not imagine. Ruth could not have imagined. Lord, help us to realize that it's in the faithful daily obedience that we achieve for you things that we would never, ever think really mattered. Help us by that eye of faith to realize there are purposes, there are reasons by which you have given us your word, your, your law. You taught us how to obey, and in that obedience, your name will be glorified, your will will be done, your purposes will be achieved. Lord, give us that faith and hope this day. In Jesus' name, amen.